Hello, my name is Declan Deneen. Welcome to Checkpoints episode 100. Man, what a thrill. Episode 100. I'm so delighted. <laughs> I mean, that's, a, that's such a self-satisfied way to start the episode. But honestly, like, I, I didn't think I'd get to, like, 25, 30. Um, and to get to episode 100 is is amazing. And there's there's no no sign of stopping, I don't think. I mean, I toy with the idea, but I don't think so. Um so here's the thing, right? I just got back uh, from Dundee, exotic Dundee. I've spent the day at uh, Arcadia in Dundee, which is an event put on by lots of people, many of whom I'm, I'm going to miss out, uh, probably. But primarily, in my mind, it was like the Biome Collective and We Throw Switches helped with the kind of curation and the, the party. Um, and it was an amazing day. And, you know, it's this classic kind of video game event. So there was various speakers talking about kind of various aspects of, of video game design some kind of very practical talks some kind of more about the kind of um the, the uses of different types of games and theoretical approaches to to making games and you know m- many people on the panels were people that i've had on this show before so brico gave a keynote which was oh god so good and cara ellison was on a panel and uh vader plankite was talking about kind of micro games and and it was really like really fascinating and really like the crowd was mainly like i guess kind of like students and people interested in game development and stuff and it kind of occurred to me kind of halfway through the day like what on earth am i doing here <laughs> and and not in a like um not like oh i don't belong here or anything like that but just i'm you know i have no desire to to make games you know i've, I've almost made a very conscious choice sometimes it is a little bit tempting but it's one of the few kind of creative endeavors that I've never attempted. Um, and, and I don't kind of, I almost don't want to spoil it for myself. I just love video games. and I love hearing the stories behind it. And, you know, all of these, even some of the more technical talks, they were still brilliant because they just make me understand games better and therefore enjoy them more and appreciate them more, I suppose, and appreciate the kind of cultural context of them more. Um, but I just, I felt weird because, you know, this show is, I made this show because it's something I wanted to listen to. I have no aspirations to get into games journalism. I mean, I've had a few bits published here and there, but that's not my goal. My goal is literally just to make this show. Um, and it just—it felt weird. And also, it, like, it occurred to me that like, I would never—I would never be at that event if it wasn't for this show. And partly because I met a lot of people, kind of organising it through doing the show. They've been guests on the show before, um, and I just—I just—it felt brilliant. I, I felt really like happy to be there and like really appreciative of all the things that the show has has enabled me to do and people i've i've been able to meet it's it's been really amazing plus a guy a total stranger came up to me and said hi i love your podcast which was ah oh, honestly you're the best i won't say your name or anything i don't know if you if you care but i was i, I was i appreciate that so much um and just you know general reminder if if you enjoy things somebody does, tell them because they will feel amazing and you will feel pretty good too. Um, so yeah, really good day and really it felt kind of a appropriate timing with episode 100 because it's a big milestone, um, which of course requires a big milestone guest. So my guest on today's episode of Checkpoints is Tim Schaefer, who of course needs no introduction. He's the creator of Full Throttle and Grim Fandango. He worked at LucasArts for years 
uh, working on kind of the secret of Monkey Island and all the amazing point and click games, the um, Day of the Tentacle. He went off to found Double Fine so he could make Psychonauts and Brutal Legend. And honestly, like, I mean, maybe he does need an introduction. I'm just, I'm excited. It was very exciting to talk to Tim. And it's a really good episode. Uh, plus, there's a little kind of, there's a, a bonus excerpt after the interview with Tim. It's a, it's a, it's a bit I cut from the episode I recorded with the, the amazing Rod Humble. Um, and it's just Rod. Rod is a, a big fan of the show. I was delighted to find out, and he he kind of quizzed me a little bit about why why I started it, and kind of not just because it's something I wanted to listen to, but the, you know a specific thing that happened in my life that made me think that there must be more good stories like this. Um, so you can stick around for that if you want. You don't have to. Um, I realise I haven't done like a formal introduction in terms of you know if you're a new listener, what is this show? Is it just some guy kind of uh, having an existential crisis and sort of celebrating himself a little bit too much. No, it's not. Checkpoints is a show about video games, the people who play them and the people who make them. Each episode of guests on the show talks about the games that have shaped their life in one way or another, games that have inspired them, games that have forged connections, and games that have soothed wounds. Um, I'm all out of whack now. I usually do that at the beginning. <laughs> Get to episode 100, the whole thing falls apart. Um, I mean, is it worth doing some admin stuff, I suppose? Like, if you do want to get in touch with the show, you can. It's checkpointspodcast at gmail.com, or it's at checkpointshow on Twitter, or it's checkpointspodcast on Facebook. It's very important to have consistent branding. Uh, since this is episode 100, hopefully people will be sharing this like mad, and obviously because Tim's on the show. Um, so please do you know, follow the show as well. Um, that, that makes a big difference, and especially rate and review on iTunes. It's all for the best, makes more people discover the show. And hopefully, uh, if this is your first episode, also dig back into the, the archive. There's so many brilliant chats with uh, brilliant, fascinating people. Um, yeah, it's, it's really, really good. And if you if you end up really liking the show, well, there's a, there's a Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash checkpoints. Uh, all donations are very gratefully received and go back into making the show as good as it possibly can be. Um, similarly, like you know, back at the start, I was like, I don't want to be a game developer. I don't really want to be a games journalist. So, what am I doing this for? Oh, it's for all that that lucrative Patreon money. Um, I, I set up the Patreon essentially to cover all my hosting costs, which it does do. Um, but if you like the show, there's been a hundred episodes. There's been more than hundred episodes, to be honest. There's been about hundred and six, um, if you count the autosaves, which you absolutely do not. So if you have enjoyed them and you, you've never sort of put anything in the Patreon, maybe just like chuck in a couple of quids for like a month. You don't have to like subscribe forever. Um, I mean, if you don't have it, don't worry about it. You know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm not, this isn't a shakedown. <laughs> oh man, I'm excited. I'm excited. It's episode 100. Uh, okay, I will, uh, I think I'll leave it here. I'll be back next week with a new episode as always and a new guest. But until then, thanks so much for listening. Um... Let's get on with the show. Um, well, okay, let's do a, a formal introduction for them for the for the sake of ceremony. So, yep. Tim, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for for coming on. If you don't mind, would you introduce yourself? Uh, hi, I'm Tim Schaefer. I am the president and CEO of Double Fine Productions here in San Francisco. We make video games. And it's been, how long is it? It's like 17 years now you've been running uh, Double Fine? 
This Wednesday will be our 17th birthday. Oh, congratulations. I know. It feels, it feels crazy to be doing this for that long. Is it but, like, uh, does it feel still quite new, though? Even though that's been uh, quite a long time. No, I mean, I actually I got my first job uh, making video games in 1989. So it does feel, I do feel the years of video games, you know, weighing down upon me. Um, <laughs> Uh, definitely been doing it a long time and seen a lot of changes. But Double Find, is it still, like, I guess what I'm thinking is, like, has it turned into what you thought it was going to be when you started it? Well, it's interesting. I, I, I think um, I it wasn't until we'd been going for a couple of years, I was like, maybe I should read a book on how to run a company. And I, <laughs> one, of the, one of the first, you know, questions in there was like, why did you start your company? If you didn't answer money, then you're in big trouble. Because <laughs> I realized that my motivation for starting the company was I wanted to make Psychonauts. Like, I just I had this game I want to make. I guess I need to make a company to make it because I'm no longer at LucasArts. So, so I guess I'm in big trouble because I just want to make Psychonauts. And yet, here we are 17, later, 17 years later, and what am I doing? I'm making Psychonauts still. <laughs> well, that's amazing. So, and, and that is, like, a common thing, though. Like, uh, I speak to uh, a, a lot of kind of independent developers and, and who have kind of similar to you i guess like had had a job at a kind of established big company but had this kind of urge to make make their own game so they they went off and kind of uh you know started their own company and made the game um, and okay. if i'm talking to them then it's likely that they've done very well out of that uh, and they've made some brilliant games not that i'm any well, we, kind of arbiter of taste or anything but just purely you know <laughs> they, they are known i'm gonna go with your side of your okay story. no that that's good, good. yeah, yeah. <laughs> But Double Fine is kind of, it's a weird one because it's kind of occupying this kind of middle space in terms of like the scale of it. Do you think that's just just because you've been around for so long, I guess? Yeah, I mean, uh, that's the size, you know, that we wanted to be. It is a strange size. Like it's a very unusual size for a company to be in the industry now uh, because you can, you know, t you can make games a lot cheaper with fewer people, but... Um, it, it's, we have enough people that we can have a, a decent Christmas party. I think that's a really important thing. Yeah. Uh, for a company. But <laughs> I guess it's for, you know, a, a game tells you, I feel, when you're making it, how big it wants to be. Like, it's like, I really need to be 13 levels. You know, it just starts, it starts to, like, become apparent as you're making it. Okay. Um, and uh, hopefully that's not too much bigger or any bigger than you originally thought it was going to be, but sometimes <laughs> it is. But the game starts to really make itself known as, like, this, I'm this big. And that also tells you, like, and therefore I need this many people to get it made. And so um, there's something about this size that just feels that feels right to us. You know, it's still small enough that it's very familial. You know, everyone knows each other really well. They can all be very um, everybody's friends, everybody's family. But it's big enough that we can do things at a scale that, um, you know, a couple of guys in the garage maybe have a hard time doing. Yeah. And you do seem to have done that, like, with the, the whole Amnesia Fortnite stuff, like, you're almost kind of compartmentalizing bits of Double Fine to, to do that kind of kind of garage garage indie developers or bedroom coders as it would be in the UK. Did you say gouge? No, I said garage. It's just my accent. Oh, garage. I'm oh, sorry. <laughs> I thought, are you, who, are you, who are you accusing me of gouging? I would not <laughs> gouge anyway. Um, <laughs> garage. Yeah. That's normal, right? Garage. Yeah. It really just comes out of the games, the type, the type and size of games we want to make. Like a game like Psychonauts, is not as huge as you know destiny or anything you know like that but it's um it's also you know it's a 3d game with you know 15 levels and that that means yeah. a certain teams i think 
I'm, I'm curious, like your point about, you know, the game, the game kind of tells you how big it's going to be. Do you think that's like part of that is because of the type of games that Double Fine sort of generally make? And then certainly the type of games that you're most associated with are like story driven games. So that kind of in itself, you have a, you need a certain amount of runway to tell the story you want to tell. Yeah, uh, that and, you know, it's it's funny because I think they're thought of a lot as storytelling games, but to me they're also uh, world exploration games. Like, I think exploring, yeah, going on a journey, I think, is both a story and also this, this like, what's around the corner in terms of the landscape and this crazy world and the characters I'm going to meet. So I feel like there seems to be a certain amount of, just, you know, a new things you need to see before you really think of it as a journey. And uh, I guess... That's what you want to do. You want to, you want to, you know, take someone to enough new places that they forget where they started for a little while. That's interesting. Yeah, no, it totally does. And I guess that that's kind of raised another question in my head of like, if if it's if you kind of build in a, a world to explore, kind of thing, that that in itself, that's a really hard place to kind of put an ending on because you can kind of theoretically you could go on forever. Like, how do you? How do you kind of figure that out in your head? Like, what what will the limits of this world be? I mean, sometimes they present themselves at the very beginning. Like, I think that's when I got the real idea that of making Girl Fandango was I was just interested in Mexican folklore and I was reading about the four year journey of the soul. And when it said that, when it said that you know the soul takes you know after you die your soul takes this four year journey across the you know to the land of eternal rest, I was like, man, that sounds like an awesome just structure for a crazy fantasy quest. You know, and yeah, uh, and those those four years give you the structure, give you this beginning, middle, and end. And I, um, uh, so that was it was funny because that just hearing that that kind of bracket was what inspired me. Like, let's go, let's do this. Yeah, I'm sure that's super helpful as well. That you know that that you've got this kind of framework in the beginning, however kind of bare mm-hmm. bones it may be. It's just you just it's it's, it's not <laughs> it's not exactly. I'm I'm very kind of. Uh, it's not really coloring in or anything, but it is kind of filling in the gaps no, you're, essentially. You're right. I mean that's. It is that because um, you, it, there's a lot of stress when you just like, well, let's make up a game. The game can be anything. What yeah. should I make? There's this weird, I get this weird stress when I'm in that position because I'm like, it could be anything. Oh, my God. Like You, you feel like you're falling through the sky. You know, you're just nothing. <laughs> you're just falling. You don't know where the ground is. You don't know. Ah, you just like, and then you hang on to something and you grab, and you try to build off of that. But when you know, they're like, oh, it's a four-year journey of the soul that's a really nice strong framework to, to hang your art on that's that's excellent well we're gonna uh i'm sure we'll come back to this but we'll meander back for now though tim uh, and if you can remember what was your very first experience of a video game well i mean i am really old and i remember it was like I, I actually it was at summer camp i was at a summer camp that had a lodge and it had a um uh had an arcade a stand-up arcade of i should know this by now i think it's space race or race in space. What is that game called? Is that like um, the, the kind of Don Bluth animated game? No, no, no not Space Ace. Ah, okay, uh, okay. I gotta look this up to make it right. But it was uh, no, it was like a vector graphics, like 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 old asteroids version. Um, ah, okay. Graphics. Like space war. And you, yeah, it was like, like yeah, but it was called uh, Space Race, and it was by Atari, and you can see it on YouTube, and it's like um. Oh. I don't know if you can hear that, but it's just these two spaceships going up the side of the screen, dodging horizontally scrolling asteroids. And uh, it was just like, oh, God, that's amazing. And um, 
And a lot of so I, I saw a lot of games in those early days. My dad was a big influence. He was just really interested in this brand new thing, and so he would take me to arcades and see like Night Driver and uh, Space Invaders and and all those early arcade games. And then bringing home an Odyssey, I would play with the Magnavox Odyssey all the time. And whereabouts? Uh, whereabouts was this? And kind of what age were you? I guess. Um, I was growing up in Sonoma, California, and our house, you know. A lot of the, that summer camp was at uh, Lair the Blair, Lair the Bear Camp Blue. It's a Berkeley alumni camp, and then um, uh, I remember seeing what was that? There was a motorcycle racing arcade game where you had to twist an actual motorcycle controller and do these jumps, and there were like plastic overlays on the screen that were the the tubes the motorcycle would come out of. Anyway, oh yeah, yeah. So I think the Magnavox Odyssey came out in seventy two, seventy three, and so it must have been around that, those years. And northern california here where i first first played them and so was it like uh was it like kind of like a monolith in 2001 moment like oh my god what are these things or was it just because you said your dad was into it which is quite rare that kind of parents yeah. kind of get their kids interested in a game so did, did it I mean, feel like a really impactful thing or was it just like oh cool my dad showed me this fun thing no it was like i was just really hooked and at first everyone in the family gathered around it we all wanted to get we we're like what is this weird thing and everyone was playing with it and then within a few days i was the only one who kept with it but i was just always pressuring my dad to get more cartridges for it and then he got he's like well let's not buy any more cartridges for this one let's get that atari video computer system and then you know my dad was very very frugal and i just remember each cartridge was like i had to make the case for like why we wanted to get <laughs> the next game but I think a lot of people, when you talk about, especially early adventure games and stuff, a lot of people talk about um, playing them with their parents. Like, um, it seems really different. It seems because really, uh, people refer to the early days in video games uh, and computers as a quote-unquote hobbyist market. Yeah. And how and before it went mainstream, so it was a hobbyist. And I think of, like, that specific type of hobby was kind of like, you know, garage, like, by, I don't know if you had Heathkit, Heathkit over there, but, like, a... Uh, yeah, it wasn't one so. of the very popular UK, like the Sinclair. Yeah, yeah, there's, there's there. MX Spectrum. Like, and, and this has totally come up on the show that there, there seems to be a, a very specific divide in terms of, you know, mm -hmm. kids playing consoles. In America, it seems like everyone was given a Nintendo Entertainment System at some point. Just It was just delivered to the house. Everybody had one. Whereas in the UK, everybody grew up with, with like the Spectrum and the Acorn. So it was very much more of a, a computer right. scene, basically. And there was a lot more kind of... Yeah. Uh, programming and stuff in, in was that a kit though was that uh, Sinclair a kit or did you no, buy no, no, it no it fully? wasn't a kit you just bought it and plugged it into the TV I think it's related there was a, a one that was a kit in America that you, uh, Heathkit where you'd build it you'd build a computer and it was just, it was just like this weird um, uh, yeah yeah. I'd always go to the computer store with my dad and uh, he would he, 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 he stayed interested in computers but I got really into them and uh, why, was, um, why do you think he was interested in them what did what did he do I think he always like he's a doctor, but he always like he was like he bought a calculator when it was like two hundred dollars to buy a calculator. <laughs> you know, he he just loved that new technology. Like he loved the fact that this thing would calculate num you know addition for you, and that, that was amazing. Um, so he he loves that kind of stuff. He got a computer in his car that would track your mileage and stuff like that. So he always loved um, computers and tech and gadgets. And uh, but I was the one who learned how to program and get more into it from the and the creative side of it. And did that start like? quite young like the because it was more of a hobbyist thing were you like immediately pulling things apart and figuring out how games worked 
But yeah, I mean, playing the Odyssey and the Atari and then getting an Atari 400 computer. That was the natural progression there. Because the Atari 400, you could make games that looked like they were, uh, you know, 2600 games. Yeah. And they still use the, the same processor and everything, 6502. And then, you know, tried to make games in basic. One of my first books uh, for games was a, you know, how to type in, you would type in these games from, from the basic computer language. And, and so back then when you won, you got, a, you know, you would get these magazines that had listings for games and you'd sit there oh, absolutely, and you would yeah. type. And sometimes my dad and I would trade back and forth. There'd be this whole like war, World War II Pacific, you know, battleship simulator that was all text, you know, and you, you would um, type it in. It'd be pages and pages of just typing. But you'd read things while you're typing like, oh, that's how that works. Oh, interesting. <laughs> and But was that like, you say you were doing this with your dad, like, was it, uh, did you have like kids, like like peers that would were interested in computers as well? Yeah. Yeah, my uh, I had a nerdy group of friends who were also later in high school. They'd be the computer club. Okay. Uh, and we sat in a back room, like these portable buildings in the back of our high school, and they had six or four TRS eighties, which was the Tandy the Radio Shack computer. Yeah. Tandy Radio TR TRS eighties that had two floppy disk drives in <laughs> each one, and uh, and we would. Um, we would uh, talk about video games a lot, and that's where things like you know how there's you know the adventure cartridge for the twenty six hundred. Yeah, ever, yeah, it's a know, very very common uh, poll from people. Yes, the, the classic um, story of a square that was hated by a bunch of ducks. It yep. had an arrow, an arrow that they used to kill the ducks. <laughs> that's a Atari joke for only Atari people, and. Um, uh, why was I talking about that? Oh, and th- there's an Easter egg. I think it's the first Easter egg that anyone ever was aware of, where if you bring, you go into the certain part of the certain room, you can pull out a, a pixel, which is actually supposed to be the magic ring of the game. And yeah. you can use the magic ring to get through a wall, and the wall lets you then see the name of the, the Warren Robinette, the, the designer of the game. And um, that, that that group of friends is how I found out about that. And I don't because we didn't have the internet. We didn't have no computer game magazines back then. And so I don't know how that information got around, except for just word of mouth, a little, little word of mouth of just talking. That's <laughs> amazing. Playgrounds across the the world. No, um, but that's I, how we found out about that. That history. has definitely come up as well. Like other people have mentioned that, and like some people have, have even said that it was kind of that was their first kind of glimpse into oh, people make video games. Like a human made this is is finding mm-hmm. that Easter egg. But I had no idea. Yeah, without the internet or magazines and stuff, like where that would would go. Um, mm-hmm. But were you like with this kind of group of, of, of pals and this this computer club? Was it was it just kind of overall computers are really exciting, or was it specifically games? Like, were there any kind of games that you, that kind of you bond over? I guess. Mm, yeah, I'm trying to think of the games. I mean, everything on the Atari Twenty Six Hundred we talk about, and then when we got the games on the computer, the computer games it was more like Star Raiders. I know, like, in the U.K., it was more about Amiga, and in the States, it was more about mm-hmm. Atari, I think. And so we had the Atari games of um, Star Raiders and Castle, Caverns of Mars, and, you know, they would port things like Space Invaders and stuff to it. Um, but I was really into the adventure games. And we had this one friend who, I don't know who he knew, but he was our, like, pirate software source. And he, okay. would, he, he would make discs discs of pirated software, which I now am paying for these days by having my games be pirated. I can't complain about my games <laughs> being pirated because I did so much. But um, 
And we would, although I really legitimately bought all the original Scott Adams adventure games. Not Scott Adams who draws Gilbert, but there's a Scott Adams who made the, some of the first text adventures I ever played. Yeah. Um, like uh, Savage Island and uh, Pirate's Adventure and um, Voodoo Castle and all these games. I remember I, I still have them on the disc next to me right now, which is like this this little plastic case that looks like an old leather-bound book, and you open it up, and these five and a quarter floppy disks and a, a hilarious picture of Scott Adams. It's <laughs> by a dragon. It's tricky, the, the piracy thing, because it is, like... It's obviously bad, because, you know, you, there is... People have spent time and energy and money to, to make things, but also, just purely through, through uh, speaking to people on the show, it has certainly in the, the 80s and 90s it kind of informed a generation you know people who wouldn't have been able to afford to play uh, or, or buy any or play all the games that they ended up playing and stuff um it's, yeah it's a i mean it's definitely yeah, we felt pretty, not into, we would never have said we were entitled i think like nowadays when people are watching movies on i'm watching um video games and movies like on youtube and they feel pretty they're like well i never would have bought that anyway and yeah. i think I think people have settled into this thing of like, well, I'm going to freely sample a bunch of stuff <laughs> and then I'm going to pay for about 10% of it. Like, I, if I really love an album, I might get the $20 vinyl collector's edition. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. <laughs> but I'm going to sample a whole bunch of free music before I buy that thing. I think that a lot of people have kind of settled on that as the model. I think it's, it's also, I mean, part of that is also just the, the prevalence of it. Like, if you were pirating games like in the 80s, you were part of a gang of people you'd have to know the right person and you'd have to be sufficiently mm -hmm. invested into that medium to be able to take advantage of this whereas now everything is kind of everywhere um yeah and i know i've told this story maybe too much but it did hurt me when i went to apply for a job at lucasarts when i they asked me what other games did i play and i said ball blaster which was the name of ball blazer when it was pirated <laughs> So it almost cost me my entire career, kids. Don't do it. Don't pirate. Or if you do, just shut up about it. Um, um, so, so with all the kind of the the, the homes sort of programming stuff, did you kind of have a sense that you'd like to do something in games, that you'd like to work in games? Did it feel like that was a possibility? You know, I, it was interesting because I felt like it was impossible to do. I really felt like it was people who are... I, I couldn't imagine how people made these games. I assume Atari was like this... Willy Wonka-like factory of uh, super genius scientists who were sitting around making these games together. They just knew their brains were a whole different, you know, thing than mine. And yeah. I just, I remember I did write, there's Analog Magazine, which is a magazine about 6500, 6502 compu computers. Um, and I wrote them, and I was like, how do, how do I get a job in video games? And they never wrote back. And, and so I was like, well, I guess I... How old are you at well, that point? You're like crazy 30. I was in high school. I was okay. in high school. <laughs> and um, and I never thought of it, you know, when I was in college, I was like, I guess I'll, I, I really, I started getting more interested in creative writing and I thought I was going to be a writer and I would just suffer and struggle and, and have a, a database programming job for a long time and then eventually get a, a job, you know, have my hit book of short stories, which I still <laughs> haven't, have yet to write. Um, and then I just, I just happened to see that job listing at LucasArts for programmers who could write dialogue and that kind of set my career in, in motion well we will we'll come back to that but like I'm, I'm curious about going to to university like because like games would still have been i imagine like a relatively niche pursuit so you're leaving behind this kind of 
gang of friends like did you did you ever kind of drift away from games and be like oh no that's not cool i'm, yeah. I'm, I'm going to university yeah. now i can be cool now i can start a band or something i, I got into like got into creative writing i always i brought my atari 800 to college with me and i like played games in my dorm room but i missed this period where right when a lot of people jumped to the nintendo that's right when i went to college and started getting into um you know things that happened at college and i got a girlfriend and i got all this uh, other things started happening and i missed the whole 8-bit nintendo era which is like this defining thing for most people who work in the game industry who can just make in jokes about uh mega man and <laughs> everyone knows what they're talking about and i have to kind of like laugh along <laughs> mega man <laughs> see the one that that takes off it turns out to be a girl in the end or is that the one that... <laughs> and so i you know picked all that stuff up secondhand but it does definitely uh this this gap i think a lot of people in the game industry have a gap it often happens at a later time like it's a super nintendo or it's yeah. something the dreamcast or there's some era they missed because they're they uh focused on something else you know but i feel like that era gives you perspective like i feel people who've you know i've always i've always advocated for a balance of like um the the nerdly life we all lead and then also splitting your life between that and uh other people you know spending time with other people who don't care about that stuff yeah absolutely <laughs> but so, so while you were playing in university like would, would that have been like uh, sort of two-sided question like were you kind of peripherally aware of this kind of new console revolution and and what games did you play if if you weren't playing console games would it just be like kind of just comforting games from when you're a, a teenager yeah i mean i was playing uh the games i brought with me on my atari and i was playing i was i was playing less of them you know and i would play less of them until i got my job at um at LucasArts, and then I was just surrounded by games so much, I started getting back into playing them. And um, I, I still, I feel like until, uh, there's a kind of game, I never was really a big console gamer until, except for if you consider the Atari, right? That was a console. Yeah, that um, Right, so, I, I mean, I, I was like, it was it was when Street Fighter 2, I remember, on the Super Nintendo was, was really big, and I started getting kind of curious about that game. I was like, maybe I should just get in and like, get one of these consoles. And I got a Super Nintendo. I got it really into Street Fighter 2, and then um, Lemmings and just a, a whole bunch of uh, you know Super Nintendo games. And and that's when I started really getting back into um, uh, playing games because on the uh, you know the early the early professional you know my first gig was making adventure games, which really relied on my more of my background in the adventure you know that's what i was playing in high school a lot on the atari was i was yeah. playing all the scott adams games and then all the infocom games so zork you know getting really into the first three zork games and then um deadline and all the infocom games so that's kind of what the experience i was utilizing in my first you know started my career and then i started playing more console games and that started changing what i was making after grim fandango i think came from you know, buying Nintendo 64 and playing Super Mario 64 for the first time. And but was there like uh, at, at Lucasfilm when you got there? Like, was there like a games community? Was there like a you know like a, a lunchtime gaming session on various things? It was funny, much much less than I experience now. You know, like the um, the adventure game uh, making. The, you know, the, the, the old guard at, at LucasArts was making adventure games, was not talking about games in that kind of fan way that, 
you know, your average, you know, the almost double fine Slack channel for video games. The way they talk about video games yeah. there, like very in depth, very like these are some intense, intensely aware of the, you know, the state of the art of the industry, you know. And I think um, it, it was different back then. It felt a little slower, I guess. There wasn't there wasn't so much of a bandwidth of like there. I mean, there definitely was a lot fewer games being released, but it yeah. was, you know, back then it was like. Um, new things that made a big impact were like the Game Boy came out and all of a sudden everyone was playing Tetris and that was a huge obviously milestone everyone playing you know uh, at their first handheld you know and playing a game like Tetris that just swept you know probably it had been around the Spectrum Hall by version I guess people have been playing that but um did you do you think it was it felt um like like separate somehow because certainly looking back like the, the those are LucasArts adventure games that they were such a distinct thing like out, almost outside of regular games like they were a proper special kind of thing that just appeared on the video game landscape yeah i think it'd be very unfair to compare like a monkey island with a with a tetris like did you feel like you weren't part of that or that you were something well, maybe, different but i feel like no no because it it wasn't that everything was very different back then i mean like uh, you know the other games around were you know king's quest and the uh, the other big genre of games it felt like the biggest genre of games um besides ours was like flight simulators you know like everything larry holland did at lucas arts you know that was another big branch of of games and then you know civilization games you know um uh were big and, and like uh sim city i think was already was that already back then yeah so um it, it wasn't like you know there were no first person shooters you know there was no whole genres that were so Performers and stuff. They just weren't people really. They weren't that big yet. But I guess well, Nintendo stuff had already happened. Yeah. But um, it really started. Uh, I really started feeling that when um, the third uh, Super Mario Brothers, you know, in the third one, really hit really big. Yeah. It seemed to really, really start to get hit. You know, what used to be this, what they call the hobbyist market, the disc-based games that were, you know, games you'd you know play with your dad and stuff. All of a sudden, this younger audience was playing them purely on console, and it seemed to, you know, open up a whole new part of the industry. And then adventure games felt really different than that for sure. But in the really old days, it was all um, it was a similar type of people making these games. Yeah. It was, a, it was a different. It was a different scene, and they didn't feel that different than stuff that was going on. Was elsewhere. there any ever? was there ever any thought to to making kind of adventure games for consoles like i know you did you did the the nes port of maniac mansion right but outside of that i don't think there's been a huge number of kind of crossover titles until very recently yeah it seemed like adventure games you know and obviously they they a lot of people felt like they went away and then they came back and um it seemed like a lot of them be reintegrated I mean, I like to think of it as just people have started to understand that video games can be anything. Yeah. There's no, there's no one thing that video games have to be. There's no one uh, market they need to go after, and um, so you can have things like Broken Age and all the remasters of Grim and, and Full Throttle and Dot that we've done for the, you know, the PlayStation can coexist on the console along with Destiny. Yeah. And um, so, so I want to talk a little bit about your kind of experience at, at LucasArts. Like, was it? Was it terrifying? Because you went pretty much straight from university, right? Yep. Yeah, I went and I had the advantage of starting on the same day as Dave Grossman, who um, would end up being my partner on Day of the Tentacle. Um, so you could both be terrified together. 
Yeah, we were both in, we walked in and they are the the person who signed us in Judith uh, who was like giving us our orientation is like, "Okay, let me just be honest. Both of you are pretty much identical to me." And they just <laughs> treated us as like this pair the whole time. And so and then the two of us got put in a group of four who along with um they were we were called the the original scumlets. We were just we were called scumlets because we were learning scum which was a language that all those adventure games were made in. Yeah. And so we, it was kind of like being hired in a little, like, mini-university class. We even went to a, you know, we took a thing we called Scum U. And so we were at a small group of junior people hired at the same time. So that was really kind of a, a bonding thing that made us feel a little less terrified. And also, there were only 40 people in the company. And so it wasn't, and everyone was very relaxed. And, and you know, our boss was David Fox, who we've ever interviewed. is just one of the gentlest guys you'll meet, you know. I mean, Ron Gilbert's pretty grumpy, and so he was scary at first until you get to know him. Once you get to know him, you realize he's actually very, very grumpy. But, he, you know, it was a very friendly uh, friendly group of people. It was a little intimidating to be at Skywalker Ranch. Yeah, I, I, I can't imagine. But, but that was just also part of totally the, thrilling as well, though, surely, because it's yeah. Skywalker Ranch. It was crazy. I mean, the, 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 you know, we got to, like, pick out our art for our office by going to the archive of these printed... <laughs> You know, this is the amazing concept art for Star Wars that we got to pick and put up on our wall. And uh, and we'd be walking around Skywalker Ranch, which was not intended to have a bunch of nerds hanging out. You know, it was meant to, like, be a It was, a it was for, for one people. nerd to hang out. Yes, for one big nerd to hang out. But also, um, it was meant as a creative retreat for people making, you know, writing screenplays yeah. and, and uh, doing stuff. And it is now. I mean, they, they still they do that they certainly you know skywalker sound is there and they do have a lot of people work doing creative work for movies there but way back in the corner was a, a 40 computer nerds making video games <laughs> um i guess so to, to continue that thread like um how was the the shift then to work in on full throttle which is that that was like your first like this is your game now that you get to make like mm. did, did that feel different or was it already just quite a kind of communal atmosphere anyway I kind of grew into it, you know, it was, um, uh, you know, I'd done my first, uh, once again, benefiting from my partnership with Dave, you know, because we got to co-project lead Day of the Tentacle, which was also, it was a sequel to Ron's Maniac Mansion game, so we had this, a lot of characters already set, and the world already set, and we were kind of given permit, like, our, the company told us, like, hey, would you please make a sequel to Maniac Mansion, which is a great relief of pressure instead of having yeah. to sit there like i was trying to do before that i was like okay i have an opportunity to make a game what what you know starting from a blank page and being like game 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 let's make a game is really hard but someone giving you an assignment <laughs> like that make this make a sequel and, and and ron already had the time travel idea the basic and then going from there was a great way to get started and then gave us the confidence to like actually have an idea of full throttle afterwards and I think that's where I really that's where that pause in my video game fandom really paid off because I think, you know, going into college liking video games, but then also being curious about the world at large and finding out how much amazing stuff there is in the world that you just never heard of before. And yeah, you know, in your anthropology class, I learned a lot about folklore, which is amazing, and that's where all you know the, the genesis for Griffandango came from that class, and then taking a psychology class and learning about the study of dreams. And, uh, and, and Jung and Freud and all led to, I think, Psychonauts. And I just think there's, 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 you're supposed to so many ideas every day. Um, that I think is, that is something really essential for a designer. Like I think anyone who wants to design games should spend some time thinking about things that are not video games for sure. 
but thinking about things in the world of literature and the world of anthropology and science and all these, there are all these different um, uh, uh, great banks of of human exploration. I think you know feedback into your inspiration for your creative ideas that are really important if you're going to make games. Absolutely, and 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 do you? Like at the time, were you kind of very conscious of, of of that idea? Like, did you feel like, oh, you know, we can make games about anything? Like, did you feel like you were doing something new or, or different? You know, I mean, when I was at Lucas, or yeah, like when you will use Full Throttle as the example. Like, did did you feel like you were kind of uh, pushing a, a new frontier or something in games, or were you just like, oh, this will be fun? Were you not thinking well, about it that much? It's more like. Um... We were were nerdy and into games for sure, but we didn't. There was a certain like, um, there's a certain when things get too nerdy, they get really comfortable. And like, you're really comfortable. It's like, yeah, I could just do high fantasy again. I like the Lord of the Rings, so let's do a high fantasy yeah. thing, you know. And um, I think that kind of comfort is really uh, uh, can be a problem, you know. It can lead to really samey inspirations and really like repetitive uh, games that just look like every other game. We just, you know, we, we we talked about what kind of games we're doing on the make. It never would have occurred to us to make another high fantasy. You know, that was all you could see back then was science fiction and high fantasy in video games. So it was like, we it was always just like it seemed automatic to all of us there to like, you know, what what hasn't been done before. Let's let's think about what hasn't been done before. And um, back then there were not a lot of pirate games when Ron, you know, came up with that one. And and um, yet it's still a fantasy world, you know. And so when I was thinking about, you know. You know what hadn't been done before, and someone started talking about bikers. I think that just was a natural. Like, there's another world. There's another world that's outside of our normal experience, but still has rules and characters and and different uh, laws that you have to obey and um, uh, politics to it. And so, uh, just just wanting to explore that and just research that and reading Hunter S. Thompson books and watching The Wild One and 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 <laughs> um, getting all the inspiration you could possibly uh, get and try and put that into um, into that game full throttle. It, it, I guess the reason I'm asking this is because, like, uh, your your kind of work and, and all of the, the the people that sort of LucasArts who made these games, like they're, they're a very common kind of inspiration for a lot of people that I speak to uh, on on the show. Like they were kind of games that kind of shifted people's like expectations or, or understandings of of what a game could be. Like, did you do you have games like that for you? Like, were, were they? Because they do seem like very much like uh, brand new things, even though they were like adventure games before that. Like, uh -huh. did you feel you were building on a legacy, or that you were making something brand new? Um, that's really interesting. I mean, I mean, we were building on you know, you know those even those text adventures were all very varied. You know, there was yeah. one Voodoo Castle. There's a Voodoo one. There's a vampire one. There's a pirate one. There was uh, stuck on a weird, crazy island one, and um, so variety. I think, I, I mean, I think it has more to do with your creative ambitions, even outside of video games. Like, I think most people, when they want to make something creative, want to make something that people haven't seen before. Yeah. And so we were always pushing that, and I think um, we weren't. I don't know. We were very supported by the, you know, the company we worked for. Although there were definitely moments of antagonism, it was a very rare opportunity to be really well funded. Uh, as we were in that we were working for um, George Lucas and he is, you know, we, we didn't have to worry about uh, money as much as a lot of people do. And so we could make up something new. And so the budgets were pretty low. I think Monkey Island was still like $200,000, $200, which is low to me. That's pretty low. Yeah, no, that's um, crazy. And 
I think I, I think that's the budget. That's what I've heard. And so, um, <laughs> so we so we had money to 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 pay for artists and programmers and all that stuff you need, but we also couldn't do license stuff because the game license for for Star Wars was elsewhere. And so we had to do the guy. I guess we got to make up a whole bunch of stuff. We got all this money, and we got we don't have any IP. I guess we got to make it up, which is amazingly. That's an amazing opportunity for anyone. Like there, there are very few people who get that shot to like, hey, guess what? I have a whole bunch of money here, but I don't have any licenses for you to use. Could you just make up something from scratch? And that set that that made that that weird little bubble happen where we just made up a whole bunch of um, new original crazy worlds from scratch. Yeah, that's crazy. I don't think it ever occurred to me before that why didn't they make uh, a star wars game uh, just uh, the the kind of the kind of adventure games and LucasArts, they just they go together as much as kind of lucasfilm and star wars does i've never thought to question why yeah. why that existed in the first place because we couldn't i don't know how many years it was not allowed but it was not allowed i think because either Kent, like um parker brothers or somebody else had the rights and so we didn't have the rights until that we did that deal with jvc for the super star wars games and then we started making more and more Star Wars games, and that was kind of a little bit of the beginning of the end. Oh man! But Super Star Wars, though, that was a hell of a game. Um, well, there that was that was the golden period right in between. You know, we had the period where we couldn't make Star Wars games, and then there was a period where we're like, okay, we'll make Star Wars games, but they have to be really, really, really good. And so they like Jedi Knight and you know Tie Fighter and X Wing and all those you know first Star Wars games were just amazing. I mean, have been good Star Wars games since, but. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. absolutely. Um, but those were the best ones, let's face it. Those were the best ones. <laughs> were the best ones. Um, I'm going to take a, a brief aside for some relatively quick-fire questions, Tim. Um, so, oh. if you had oh. to uh, play a game with death for your own mortal soul, what game are you best at? Uh, you know, I've never lost a game of Pictionary. Oh, really? So I think if it was if my life was on a line, I I might have to revert back to the safety of my undefeated uh, streak at Pictionary. But you'd have to run other people into that game. though. You'd have to run people into Pictionary. Game? I am talking about video yeah, game. And no, board games work fine as well. People have used board games before, but that's <laughs> but you're you're game, you're playing with other people's lives there. I don't know if I'm if there's any video game where I'm not really that good at video like physical video games. I'm always aware of the fact that I'm terrible at them. And uh, I think that's why I like adventure games. Because <laughs> it doesn't matter how many times you fail or you just don't get it. Eventually, you can just scratch your head enough and you just figure out a way through it. So, uh, man, but if you had to play an adventure game, you always have to look up at least one puzzle. So would you die if you had to look up a puzzle? Yes. An interesting way of doing that, actually, is you could both make an adventure game for each other and try and ape bamboozle the other <laughs> that'd be quite fun death would make a, he would make a lot of like death in the game right <laughs> so it'd be like a sierra game that'd be rough couldn't resist all rough. the all the death based puns yeah um, okay it's yeah on sierra yeah <laughs> um if uh if you are a a competitive gamer in any sense which i i'm assuming that you're not but have you ever been kind of locked in a in a high score battle with anyone, or or had a particularly bad argument over a video game? No, I'm at, even Brutal Legend. I like had the leaderboards to myself for a while, and I couldn't get to the top. <laughs> I couldn't beat our 
like our test department. I was like, this game's gonna ship in a week, and I've got like a oh, I got a window here where I can get on the top of the leaderboards, and I couldn't do it on my own dumb game. Uh, <laughs> and, and even playing that game multiplayer, I'd get my ass handed to me. So I um, I've never been. I'm trying to think of a video game where I've ever been anywhere close to the top of the leaderboard, and I have to say no. Were you ever tempted to just hard code your name into the top of the leaderboard? Just regardless, you the best anyone else could do would be number I, two. Why haven't I not? Why haven't I ever thought of that? <laughs> just put my name in there. That's genius. <laughs> um, if if you are prone to such things, uh, which again, perhaps you're not, uh, what would be your worst rage quit? <laughs> rage quit. Uh... I'm trying to think. What's a game that's really, really frustrating? You know, even... Uh, I don't know. That's a tough one. Rage quit. No broken Brrr. controllers, no kicked... Never kicked anything. Brrr. Do you have any suggestions? Because I bet I've been bad at whatever game you could mention. But, you know, people say Meat Circus is pretty frustrating, but I thought it was pretty easy. I don't know the <laughs> oh, people's problems. I, I never... I'm one of the many who... I never finished the Meat Circus, Tim. Um, I've not oh, tried the remastered yes. version. This is yeah. this was on the Xbox. I played it. You just but... got you have to use invisibility with the dad. That's a trick. Okay. Well, this is we can relay yeah. this on to everybody in preparation for Psychonauts too. Everyone can revisit the the meat circus. Yeah. Have a have an event. Yeah. Have an, have a weekend event. Everybody revisit the meat circus. <laughs> Tim Tim Schafer will guide you through it. Um, mm-hmm. If uh, has there ever been a game that's kind of consumed your life to the point where you've had to be like i need to uninstall this this is this is taken over uh no but the, you know playing breath of the wild recently the new zelda game is the first time i've ever slowed down like i i, I was i was flying through that game and i was like oh, i really love that game and uh just the exploration in it just going in you know what's around this corner yeah what, what's in this weird circle of trees what's at the bottom of this lake like and I love that game, and um, I was like, I don't think I want to finish this game right now. And so I was like, I'm going to take, I'm going to play some other games right now, and <laughs> you know, I've kind of slowed down, and kind of this is the first game I've really just been dragging out to like make it last longer. Oh, see, I, I, I have, not... I have the opposite problem with that at the moment because I've only just recently started playing Zelda, and the the scale of it is is just wonderful and terrifying all at once. I mean, it actually took me a little while to get into it. At first, I was like, I, this might be overrated. People are saying how great this is. And it took me a while to like, get past, like, I think it wasn't until I got past the first Divine Beast that I was like, wait a second. I want to live in this game forever. Yeah. No, no, it's absolutely, the, the world is, is incredible. I just, this isn't a spoiler, but I just got to the the sort of desert and stuff. And it's like, oh, my God, this, is, this game is gigantic. Mm-hmm. I've not even covered half the map yet, and I feel like I've been playing it for years. Um, uh-huh. It's it's wonderful. Uh, okay, uh, has there um, uh, is there a game that you kind of revisit? Do you have a, a chicken soup game that you use as kind of a comfort? <laughs> I mean, every once in a while, I will actually plug in my GameCube because my GameCube I have my old Animal Crossing town oh. that I like to visit. <laughs> that was my I think that's the best version of Animal Crossing is the GameCube version, and that's where I have my little town of Pinkito. That I like to go and pull weeds in once in a while and <laughs> see if that stupid robot duck ever moved out because I hated that guy. But, does, um, does it not do that thing where if you leave it, you come back and it's kind of the whole town is just in disarray and there's bugs well, everywhere there, and stuff? There's weeds. There's definitely weeds and everyone's mad at you and kind of passive aggressive for a day. But you can get back into it. Like I feel like that game, 
in 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 my in modern gaming like had a weird impact on outside of gaming like i feel like that's one of the only that's one of the games that i feel like affected my life in a positive way like changed my outlook on life i so because because it's not about the end game it's not about like rushing towards some goal it's not about like just trying to beat it and get done with it and move on it's like about daily life and you know i started playing it even when I was trying to like min max it and like look up in books what the next holiday was and cheat the date to it, like Checking I got to a place where I was like, no, and all that stuff. Yeah, 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 and that can ruin the experience for you when you become a billionaire by yeah rigging to prices. I, uh, but when I was just like, you know, every day I need to talk to everyone in town to make sure I, the people I like stay in town. I don't know if that actually works, but you can you know do some socializing. Yeah, I have to go shake some trees, try and get some honey. You have to go make some money around town, catch some fish. Uh, I got to do a little decorating in my house, and I've got to like see if there's anything new going around town, like like fireworks or something like that, and um, and do a little traveling once in a while. They're like you know, just these these little things. Like every day, do do a little. You have to earn a little money. You have to be a little social. You have to do a little exploring, and then that's enough for that day. And I feel like that that was this weird um, had this weird impact on how I look at my own life. Like instead of like. I've got to achieve this thing, and then I've got to achieve that thing. Like, I'm always working, forget about today. I'm working towards some future goal. It's just like, no, every day you should be a little social. You know, you should, you don't put things off. Just do like these little things every day. So I feel like that's this game that had this, you know, little but profound impact on how I approach every day of my life. That's beautiful. Um, I'm, I'm very excited about this next question, Tim, because I ask everybody this. Um, and, and a lot of the games you've worked on are one of the most common answers. Uh, so, with all the kind of range of emotions that video games are able to to provoke, um, laughter is often the the rarest. So, Tim, what games have really made you laugh? Oh, well, uh, I think for me, like the, one of the funniest games I played is Katamari Damacy. Yep, I love. I just it just since the opening credits start and your jaw hits the ground as all the cows <laughs> and the rainbows fly out, and you're like, what? have I stepped into what is this crazy world? And it just is constantly hilarious and entertaining the entire way through it. And then the, the completely unique character of the King of all cosmos and his abusive relationship with his son. It's just like, <laughs> Oh my God, that game is, is still hilarious to this day. Um, and then I think apart from that, the funniest games ever are the portal games, you know, uh, yeah. from, uh, those, those, the valve kids. Uh, I think that Eric and all those, um, the writing on that is amazing. And um, just some of the best, funniest stuff that's that's ever been done. The way they integrate it with the design, especially on Portal Two, I think is super smart and creative. So that's some of the funniest stuff. Why do you think? Um, because like those are both excellent as Katamari actually hasn't come up before, as far as I know, which is which is good. But usually, the, the, the sort of stock answers are the Portal games, all of the kind of various LucasArts adventures. Um, and then kind of like physical stuff like Beasts of Balance or Quop or, you know, things like, like slapstick games, mm-hmm. essentially. Mm-hmm. So do you think that like doing comedy in games is particularly hard? Do you think there's a specific reason why like there aren't more kind of funny games? Uh, I mean, I, when I think about why I like it, like I I'd like to me, the really most important feeling I have when I play or any sort of entertainment like all I, I, I'm so desperate to be surprised I feel like I yeah so many movies you go to watch you're like I don't know what's gonna happen this and yep yep I saw that coming and games are very similar and I um 
am so excited whenever I'm really just confused and surprised and like, what? What should I? What have I just seen? That's <laughs> why Katamari is one of my favorites, and and Portal is endlessly surprising too. And I think that's that's what's so important to me. And I think surprise is not something that people go for a, a lot because they're they're trying to like, I don't know, I don't know. It's like it's like a certain risk that people aren't willing to take because it's it's very risky. I often will say that. You know, like action games are like action movies, which is like even if they, you know, aren't great, they'll sell well overseas. Like I feel like because there's still something there, like an action movie is still basically an action movie. Even if it's a bad movie, it's still an action movie. But a comedy that's bad is no longer a comedy. Like it leaves the genre of comedy because it just sucks. (laughs) It's like a horror movie. It's like a tedium experience. It's just terrible. So in some ways the risk is higher because it's an all or nothing yeah, proposition. Either comedy's entertaining or else you just you would pay money to not experience it. <laughs> well, that's the, the speaking of risk. This will take us nicely on to like y- you're kind of leaving uh, um, LucasArts and, and setting up Double Fine like that. Like I'm always like everyone I speak to that that sort of has this move where they're like I'm going to set up my own company to make my own game like that always seems incredibly bold and exciting and terrifying like did it feel like that to you because you said you did it just so you could make Psychonauts so was it more of a kind of matter of fact did it feel like it was well, a new frontier it it was t- it was terrifying for like the year it took me to decide to do it because there was a year in between finishing Grim Fandango and me leaving and I was working on this other game but. Um, I kept thinking about. Uh, I really feel like I should start my own thing, but I was. I, I. I. You build up all these little roadblocks for yourself. Like, oh, who's gonna, who's gonna order the printer paper? Oh, that's impossible to do. And who's? How do you figure out a lease and a landlord? Yeah. How do you incorporate a company? And all and the business honest, side you know, of businesses. Yeah, and because you can't imagine doing it, you just think, well, that's impossible, and so you kind of you're paralyzed for a long time. And then you start you start down the road and you talk to someone who's done it and they're like it's not that hard. <laughs> like you know call a lawyer you can get incorporated really fast and here's an online thing that helps you and and you start realizing all this stuff is possible and then you're just like oh my gosh the whole world is like you're just there are all these people are just kind of like so much of the world so many of the people are just kind of imprisoned by these things they imagine are boundaries that are just not in boundaries at all you can just walk out the door and start your own company and just it's it's not that hard I mean that's speaking from a position of uh, yeah. Oh, by the way, you should have some money in the bank. Yeah. <laughs> yes. You know. So that is the that is a privilege I was lucky to have at that point because of full throttle. So um, when I say it's super easy, I don't mean it's super easy. I mean it's easy. It's that's all relative. If you're if you're lucky enough to have a place you can live, to make you know you live at your parents' house while you make your indie game, that's great. Or if yeah. you can live cheaply, you know, or if you saved up money from your previous hit game at a publisher, you could do that. Um, uh, but is so, it like I, I feel like the the kind of the extra part of it the the reason that kind of double fine is kind of interesting in terms of like the the scale of it is like having mm-hmm. the responsibility of like other people like that that's what I I, I find most yeah uh, what I feel like is probably the most challenging part of it because a lot of smaller yeah. development teams they they kind of they go off together as a gang and they're like okay we're all in this together whereas over time obviously you 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 have a staff now like that must be. That must be quite scary. Are you trying to keep me up at night? Because that's no, 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 true. no. It just no, it's true. It, it's a no, pod, it's, true, it's, 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 it's a unique thing, I think, to, to, to in terms of people I've spoken to. That's that's one of the unique things about about your place at Double Find. Well, here's what makes it possible: is you don't start off with sixty people. You know, you start you do start off by yourself, and you know the first few people are more like founders, and and, and but it's still um, you're still trying to. to you're still a little bit like Peter Pan or whatever. You're trying to like 
lead the people by you know singing about the inspiration and like oh this game's gonna be great and you know you're trying to get people to to join you in this crazy uh, crazy adventure and I think that's that you know you're so busy I think you're so busy it keeps you from really worrying about it until um, and you have nothing to lose you're starting a you're starting yeah, a project exactly. and it's together there's a lot less to lose and then when the company's going is when it's more stressful I feel like after you've been around a couple of years I mean there's a lot to lose there's your your whole company there's all your employees that you've convinced to come with you and that's that's when it keeps you up at night and I think you know, we've managed to get past some really rough spots and, and diversify and, and been able to stabilize our company by having multiple projects going on at once instead yeah. of just one big project. And um, that takes a lot of the pressure off. And crowdfunding has opened up new doors so that we don't have to worry about, you know, desperately needing money from a publisher anymore. And um, self-publishing has let us keep our own money so we can actually yeah. you know, get our own money from uh, selling our games, which is gives you a lot of freedom. So it, it is, I mean, it is... Uh, it is terrifying, but you're also, you know, you're you're you do have a responsibility to your team, of course. But you know, they're also these highly talented and very employable people who you know who know what they're doing, and they're not going to be you know thrown into poverty if something bad happens. Yeah, they'd be snatched up instantly by Facebook. <laughs> <sighs> that takes some pressure. I, I feel like I've I've I've, I've touched a, a nerve there. I don't mean to, Tim. You're doing a wonderful oh, job. Oh, we've lost a lot you're doing of people. We've a wonderful them. job. Um, well, just to sort of, I, I guess, to like, we'll, we'll begin wrapping it up, but like to go back to games for a second, like since starting Double Fine, like, I mean, this is maybe too broad of a question, but are there kind of games that you, you've experienced over the past sort of 17 years that have, that have impacted you in the same way that kind of uh, like early adventure games would have had an impact on you? And like the way you wanted to, that kind of changed the way the type of games you wanted to make, I suppose. For sure, but usually in these milestones of, you know, the adventure games definitely set me on a certain route. And then when I played Mario 64, Super Mario 64, I was like, hey, wait a second. I think I want to make console games, you know, <laughs> and I think I think I want to make a game where a guy runs around instead of types in, you know, or, or points and clicks. And um, and then when I played Mechanarium, I remember feeling like, hey, wait, maybe I want to make adventure games again. That's interesting. That's, that's really good. And... Um, and every game I play inspires me in some way to like think. I wonder if I can make one of these games. Herzog's Vi inspired me to make you know Brutal Legend, and uh, I'm trying to think of you know lately you know. Herzog's like, Vi. That's a, that's a yeah. Weirdly, I haven't. The only other time that's come up on the show was um, uh, Ken Levine. Also, like Herzog's Vi oh. had this big impact on him, and we discovered that while well, we both looked it up at the time, it was the very first MOBA, which is interesting. Um, the first, well, it's the first RTS game. I guess you, would you call it a MOBA? I guess because you have a big no, avatar. you would because you no because you have the kind of the the, the groups basically. You have like the, the the specific roles for each of the 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 characters, player characters. Maybe I'm misremembering that. I'm sure it is though. Well, I mean, I mean, back then it was thought of. I thought it was the first RTS game because that's all there was. You know, it's like yeah, there was yeah, only yeah. that, and then you know, Warcraft came later, or Dune Dune Two came later, and. Um, but that that idea of like oh you know no people were start you know we're talking about RTS games on console anymore and I was like well it's, the first one was on console that you know it hurts like why but you didn't have a cursor you weren't pointing and clicking you were an avatar that flew around giving commands yeah. from avatar and that's that's kind of why that's why Eddie Riggs has wings so he can fly like the jets and hurts like why oh that's amazing um I I absolutely loved um Brutal Legend like oh awesome I, it has the 
also like and it, it's such a, it's something that that double fine does particularly well in terms of like the presentation it has the best opening to a video game and title screen like ever i think like that that oh. record title screen it's just that that is that is genuinely something that you're talking about surprise it was like oh my god this is the title screen this is amazing like that that was enough i didn't even have to play the rest of the game i did <laughs> but but that like if, if it was just that I mean, this is this is the best this is the best game um do you feel like just to, to carry on with that kind of idea do you feel as inspired as you ever were or maybe you're just too busy like to to kind of think about it in those terms because you're like i need to make this next thing we need to work on this project oh no i mean i think it there's definitely been highs and lows and i remember it was that project I, you know i was second launch was such a like up and down like we got canceled we got resigned we almost went out of business we had this horrible crunch mode i remember you know starting for legend being really excited and then this kind of delayed reaction i was kind of like oh i feel really tired like i was really burnt out and um it was my first meeting with jack black when we pitched it to him he got so excited and then we, the more I talked about the game with Jack Black, I remember I got more in touch with like, oh yeah, that's why I wanted to make this game. This game <laughs> is, yeah, you're right. This is awesome. And he was getting excited and I was getting excited. So um, that, that was really reinvigorating, you know, and then, you know, and uh, I've been through, going through a phase of really getting into board games and, and I found those uh, really inspiring because, you know, most of my games have been really focused on the kind of the fantasy wish fulfillment of a, you know, the character and the, um, less on the on the mechanics of the you know the player choices but i think playing board games made you really makes it really clear you know they, they put the you know it's all about the mechanics you know and uh that's been really inspiring and then playing breath of the wild it kind of pulled me back into video games where i was like that's right i do love these things <laughs> so you know it's it all moves just around in inspiration moves around and i think you have to let it uh you have to let it lead you where it's going to go yeah, I mean, it is like the, the kind of the sheer volume of, of games now. This is a common sort of thread on the show is that, you know, it's it's difficult to kind of keep up with stuff. Like, do you, as you're saying, you, you, you have this, you had this epiphany with Animal Crossing. Like, do you kind of set aside a little time of a week to just trawl through itch and play games? Especially because you, you're a publisher now as well. <laughs> uh, yeah, people who do that for me. No, <laughs> <laughs> um, we do. I mean, actually, seriously, we have. We now that we publish with Double Fine Presents, and we have Greg Rice who runs that. Um, goes to. We get a lot of submissions for that, and so he has to play a lot of those of those games. I, you know, I try and play games every night uh, before I go to bed. I, I, I sometimes I get into really deep with one game, like Breath of the Wild. Although I like to play, I like to mix it up. There's a lot of like uh, roguelike, like um, Loot Rascals. We play Loot Rascals. Oh, okay. It's really addicting, and I love that you can do a run of that before you do a long. Play session with another game, so. Um, a little palette and I've been trying to, Yeah, and I, now that I've wanted to slow down Breath of the Wild and kind of like make it last, I've been playing, going back in and playing my, my pile of shame, like going back in and finishing um Little Nightmares and uh, and even Gravity Rush. I like, oh, I kind of miss Gravity Rush, but I want to go back and check that out. So you like, you have these moments where you get a, a second where you can go back and and uh, catch up on your shame pile. <laughs> Make it call in a shame pile. I think whoever came up with that phrase is, is a terrible idea because <laughs> nobody nobody wants to visit their shame pile. Let's just let's just put on whatever's on the shame pile and play that together. It's, it's, it's a very unappealing term. Would you like to come over to my house and play in my shame pile? Yeah, exactly. It's like a, it's like a really unclean pillow fort. <laughs> um, that that seemed that funnily enough that does seem like an appropriate place to to finish up, Tim. Um, but if there's anything, uh, if there's anything, I'm off that, to my shame pile. <laughs> 
if there's anything that kind of hasn't come up on the show, anything that you wanted to mention, please take this opportunity now or let people know where they can find all your wonderful video games. Oh, yeah. Well, we just put uh, uh, Full Throttles out on the iPad and iPhone. How about that? That's pretty exciting. Speaking of old point-and-click adventures that are really fun, you can play Full Throttle with your finger, just one finger, in your shame pile. <laughs> That's nice. Yeah. Okay, That's Tim, I'll, I'm going to let you go. Thanks so much. Is that okay for you? Was that, was that enjoyable? How was it for me? It was great. Okay, it, it good. Great. Perfect. Oh, the classic Checkpoint Bed music. I haven't used this for a while. I, I should mention that this wonderful music you're hearing now, as well as the exceptional theme tune to the show, is provided by Samuel Baker. Um, so really want to say a really big thanks to Sam. He's made the show better because, honestly, it's such a good theme tune. Uh, and also Craig Stevenson, um, who, who did the, does the artwork for the show, uh, the amazing kind of cover art, which has, has several meanings. Uh, you'll need to get in touch with Craig to find that out. Um, yeah, big thanks to, to both of those guys. They've made the the podcast a much more kind of stronger brand, let's say. Um, so as I mentioned in the introduction, here's an extra kind of excerpt. Um, it's taken from the interview I did with Rod Humble, who is amazing. He used to run The, the Sims. Uh, he makes amazing art games, including The Marriage. He was the San Francisco um, Museum of Modern Arts game artist in residence last year um and, and he's a real big fan of the show as well which i was delighted to hear and he he asked me about kind of the genesis of the show beyond kind of um wanting to make something i wanted to listen to he wanted to know if there was a specific thing that happened to me that made me think they would be good stories and um, when you ask people about the games that shaped their life and and there is and there was and i shared this with rod and i thought I'd, i'll cut out of that episode it makes nice episode 100 fodder it's a little bit dark i mean it's not that dark um i mean no it's a nice arc it's a nice arc you'll feel good at the end of it um yeah so thanks as always for listening uh, here's an extra little bit about the genesis of uh, of checkpoints hey look can i can i can i ask you a couple of questions before you go yeah of course you can because i'm because i'm curious so uh, so what games did you, uh, were the catalyst for you, like thinking I need to start up a show? Cause you, you, uh, you know, clearly at some point you're like, you know what, I'm, I'm going to make this leap and I'm going to talk to people in the industry. I'm wondering what the catalyst was. Cause it's fascinating. Cause I, I, I was delighted that this existed and I'm kind of curious. Like at what stage you were like, huh, do you know, know what I like deeper? It's interesting. I, I, um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm probably going to edit this out because I was going to save this whole story for another episode, another time. Um, but it's, it's something I've had in my head for for a very, very long time, and I was kind of, it got to the point where I was like, well, if no one else is going to do it, I'm just going to do it myself. Um, yeah. and it was, for me specifically, like, you have certain songs that are kind of, you know stuck in your head at certain points or they you know pull you back to an emotional moment um and they i have a million of those and there's a million shows about that you know desert island discs is partly about that and there was an old show yeah. uh specifically called all back to mine that i loved which was more talking to musicians themselves about the songs that kind of impacted them at certain points uh, and for me personally like when i was 
18 or 19 i guess um like my whole i've been I've, I've been great at school just kind of i don't want to say like just you know casually good at but i was i was very academic and i, I didn't necessarily have to work super hard at it i was just i was quite lucky in that i was quite good at school i suppose right um and i was all set to go to university and then i kind of messed up my exams a little bit and i was like it's okay i'll just i'll reset i'll go to a different university and then my dad died and then this girl dumped me and i just found myself like alone in my hometown and all of my friends had left and it was just like it was a proper dark year of my life basically Ah, and i'd given up games like about three or four years earlier i'd sold all of my video game stuff and i bought a guitar and i started a band <clears throat> which was part of the reason why uh, my grades had messed up a bit because i got more focused on that and wow. i just on my own bought a second-hand nintendo 64 uh, and a copy of tony hawk's pro skater uh, nice. and just played it like like you wouldn't believe for like a good three or four months i'd say um, and it was just, it was just this sort of soothing bath for my my body and soul at that at that point in my life, where just everything everything I knew about the world just collapsed at a very kind of awkward age for me. Uh, and it was just, it was, what? it was amazing, not amazing. It was really bad at the time, but coming out of it and on the on the back of that game coming out, uh, the, the back of my newfound love of games via Tony Hawk's Pro Skater on yeah. Nintendo sixty four of all things um i got a playstation 2 purely because tony hawk's pro skater 3 was coming out on it um and it was just a perfect timing when suddenly games just got super interesting and i discovered internet forums and i kind of my whole life changed again and i, I met people who worked on video game magazines it's like man i used to love video game magazines and i just developed oh, yeah. these whole new kind of group of friends and it just completely changed my life and now like i wouldn't be I live in Glasgow now. I, I met a girl. Um, we're very happy. We've been together a very long time. Like everything is going, you know, pretty well now. Things all worked out, obviously. Uh, and just like that, playing Tony Hawk's Pro Skater One on the Nintendo 64 was just a really profound moment in my life, and it represented so much. And then subsequently, awesome. games afterwards. And I thought yeah. other people have to have that. Um, and so yeah, and so that's I thought, well, that, there must be other stories out there. So I wanted to speak to people about them. That's awesome. That's that's great. 